Good morning, everyone. This morning we will be looking at the subject of worship. So in many instances where people are confronted with the presence of God, their appropriate reaction is to first cower in fear and dread, trembling, considering themselves even undone. This is not just unbelievers. This is actually people of God who do this. For instance, Isaiah 6, Isaiah responds and says, Woe is me, for I am ruined, when he saw the vision of the heavenly throne, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He thought he was going to die at that point. All right, The prophet recognizes his own sin before God, and just is fallen down and undone. He's not the only one. Uh, Manoah and his wife in Judges 13, same type of response. Now the angel of the Lord appeared to Manoah and his wife no more. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. So Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. Gideon had a similar reaction, all right? that uh, the angel of the Lord, after he appeared to him, said to him, Alas, O Lord, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord said to him, Peace to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Gideon thought he also was going to die in the presence of the Lord. This is not an Old Testament only response. In the New Testament, John had something similar in Revelation 1, starting in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like the flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, when it had been made to glow in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters." In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I felt at his feet like a dead man. That's the first thought when people are in the presence of God, just become undone and fall. That's not what we're going to concentrate on this morning. The concentration is going to be on what is primarily the second response of people, and that's to worship the Almighty God. All right. So this is a most appropriate response to God in his presence to come and worship him, bow down before him, consider him the king, and have all the majesty be put onto him. There are numerous instances in the Old and New Testament that will kind of touch on today. I'm not going to obviously go through every one of these uh, aspects. I already mentioned Gideon. His first encounter was he falls dead. One of the other encounters, though, he does fall down and worship him. And in the instance where Gideon is being called, he has doubts. He is skitterish. He wants to, well, maybe I, I can do it another way. So he first puts out fleeces to, is this really God who's, you know, talking to me? That is, am I really going to understand that I'm going to be the leader? And God then gives him the signs that he requests. That doesn't satisfy him. Then 
God has Gideon assemble an army. The army is too many, so God says, I'm whittling this down. I don't want you to think that you take credit for this. I'm going to be the one who takes credit. So he whittles it down to approximately 300 soldiers. Well, that ought to make anybody fear (laughs) when you're a commander going up against a mighty army and you only have 300 soldiers. And what God wanted Gideon to understand is the Lord was on his side. Whatever happened, whatever could happen, he's going to win because the Lord is on his side. So he had Gideon at night sneak down next to the camp and to listen to what these Midianite soldiers were saying. And he heard the interpretation of these soldiers' dream. And the account there is in Judges chapter 7. When Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship. Then he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has handed you over to you the camp of Midian. God needed to get him into a position where he was worshiping the Lord, even as he's preparing for battle for these people. It is inappropriate. He recognized God's presence was actually with him, with the Israelite army, with just the select few that they had, and he worshiped. Another instance, I've given a lot of Old Testament. Here's one from the New Testament. Jesus sends his disciples across the Sea of Galilee, and they encounter a storm. At night, Jesus comes and is walking on the water to them. Peter calls out and says, hey, let me come out. So on his way out, he comes walking on the water, and Peter starts sinking because he sees the winds and waves and and doubts. Jesus pulls Peter up out of the water, and they get into the boat. And when they get in the boat, everything becomes calm. And in Matthew chapter 14 and verse 32, we have these words, when they got in the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshiped him saying, you are truly God's son. They didn't just have an external recognition or a you know, mindful recognition. They recognized appropriate. This is truly God here who's standing before us in this boat. They bowed down and worshiped him. So we're looking at this morning of the concept of worship. What does it mean now that we have uh, people who properly worship in the past? How do, how do they worship? Why we worship? And specifically how we in the New Testament are to worship the Lord our God. So the first aspect, what is worship? And there are three things to look at here. Our English word that we discuss, that I even use here, it comes from an old English compound word meaning worth plus ship, meaning the quality of worthiness, desired, good to possess. Uh, so the word in expression and would literally mean it's a quality of worth that we attribute to God. For he, he is the worthy of praise and adoration, worthy to receive worship. And we see this in many, many places in the uh, Old and New Testament. A perfect example is the vision of heaven that John has in the book of Revelation. The living creatures are saying, and I'm picking this up in Revelation chapter 4, verses 8 to 11. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and is to come. 
And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you were created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. The elders recognize that God is worthy of the worship and adoration and praise we give him. That is constitutes the meaning of what we say when we worship the Lord. There are other aspects of this worship. What is it like? What, how can we describe it? There are many Greek and uh, Hebrew words which we might say have little nuances. I'm going to expound on the two most common ones that explain what worship is. The first one is a, the Greek word proskuneo, which sounds like what it means in English. It means to prostrate oneself down before, to bow deeply, to essentially all the way to the ground. Other English types of descriptions uh, are obeisance, recognizing the honor of the one before whom you are in presence. The Greek word has root meaning of either to kiss the hand or more commonly from what I found in the uh, study this week is to kiss the ground. You're bowing so low, your face is actually literally on the ground or right at the ground. And so that's expressing what it means to worship. I have some examples of where this was done and where it is described of the type of worship that this type of worship and concept of bowing down, kissing the ground, if you were. In our Monday night Bible study, a men's study, we recently went over this in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 in verse 24 and 25. The passage is referring to the better gift of prophecy in a sense to declare God's word and to teach the scriptures. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. This is what the proclamation of the gospel brings, a proper response, a recognition of the presence of God, and a response to bow down and worship him. In Matthew 2, another example of this bowing down, this, this word that is used, uh, is when the Magi came from the east to seek out the Lord Jesus. They saw his star and were following it. So in verse 1, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived at Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star in the east, and we have come to worship him, bow down before him. And in verse 11, when they actually get to Bethlehem, after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshiped him. They told the people in Jerusalem, the Herod, what they were going to do. They went to meet the Lord Jesus, and sure enough, they worshiped him. They bowed down to him. So the first thought, uh, first word was bowing down, literally formal, prostrating yourself before God. 
The second word is latria, and those who have a background from uh, Roman Catholicism may have heard of this word before. It means the service and worship of God according to the requirements of the law. It's appropriate service that you render unto God. The word often refers to the Levitical law and the ordinances and the rites and the ceremonial workings and happenstances that the priest would do in the Old Testament. For example, uh, Paul, speaking of his fellow Jews, says in Romans chapter 9, For I wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my countrymen, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons and daughters, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. That word temple service is the Greek word latria. That's what they're talking about, rendering service unto God. In Hebrews chapter 9, the author also states this thing. Now when these things have so been prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. Again, the words divine worship in our English Bible, that is from the Greek word latria there. All the work of the sacrifice, the preparation, the cleansing, the upkeeping, the singing in the temple, all the circumstances that were to accompany the priest and the Levitical work was considered divine worship, the appropriate latria that we are to give God in the manner proclaiming to the need for a substitute, a sacrifice for our sins to pay a debt before God. That was the meaning of this word to serve the Lord in worship. In the New Testament under grace, we no longer have earthly priests performing ceremonial latria for the people or a nation. Instead, we have service to the body and love and good deeds to people of God. And in Romans chapter 12, we have again this word used of how we are to work our service before God. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Service of worship there, that is that same word, latria, serving the Lord in, in uh, however we do to one another, to the Lord himself, in our sacrifices and praises to him. The sacrifice in the New Testament is self-consecration, which embraces the renewal and transformation of life. It is a spiritual worship or a logical, depending upon the translation, and it means it is a reasonable thing to do. It's to follows a logical pattern and has its ultimate, ultimate basis in the Word of God, in the Lord Jesus himself. So that is what it means to worship, to bow down, to serve, to consider and give God glory that he is worthy to receive the adoration. Who and what to worship? And I probably don't need to cover very much of this for you all. You all know this very well. There is only one whom we worship, the almighty God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one and true only God, and the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been told this over and over again in the scriptures in the giving of the Ten Commandments. The first two commandments lay it out very, very clearly. 
You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord, am your God, am a jealous God. No other, the worship is be given to any other God through any idol, through any icon at all, period. And the Lord Jesus was emphatic on this detail as well. He was tempted by the devil uh, in his temptation and Jesus responded when the devil said, hey, I'll give you all of this, the whole world, just bow down and worship me. His answer was, Jesus answered and said, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. There's no fuzz on this, no working around this in any way. And this is something that in the Old Testament you see over and over again, God hates the idolatrous worship of his people, and he will judge that. We ourselves uh, have to be careful not to even fall into any part of this. There are other examples of people in the Old Testament who were so committed to this that when it came time to either worship an idol or to die, they picked the death. They were not going to abandon the Lord God. A good example, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in Daniel chapter 3. They refused to bow down before the golden statue. They were then reported back to Nebuchadnezzar about this. Hey, these guys, these are in your administration, yet they're not obeying your law. So in Daniel chapter 3, picking up in verse 25, and this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking at first. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be thrown in the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can rescue from my hands? The arrogance of him at that time, thinking that he's as powerful as any God there could be. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we are not in need of an answer to give you concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods nor worship the golden statue that you have set up. And we all know the occurrences there. They were thrown in the fire, yet God saved them out of it. That's the commitment that we have to have, that we serve as one and only no idols whatsoever. Even if the idol, oh, that's just an image of Jesus, or let's pray, no, never ever do that. We do not fall into that ever. So we've seen the, we've seen the definition of what it means to worship, to consider him worthy, to serve him, to bow down before him. And we've seen that we are only to worship God alone, the almighty creator. So now the question is, why do we worship in your outline? And there are three things I want to expound here. One, because God demands it. That ought to be good enough for us. And I think for everybody in this room, that is good enough. He commands it, do it. We've already talked about he is worthy of doing it. 
Exodus chapter 23 and verses 25 through 26. You shall not worship their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to the deeds, but you shall utterly overthrow them or break their sacred pillars in pieces, but you shall serve the Lord your God, period. There is no question of the giving of the law and giving of the commands to Israel who was to be worshipped only. The second reason, it's actually good for us to worship the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 13 to 14. It shall come about if you listen obediently to my commands, which I am commanding you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul, that he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early and late rain, that you may gather in your grain, your new wine, and your oil. It is appropriate and good for us. It's beneficial, if you would, to worship the Lord for us. Because of the third thing is because as a redeemed people with a new heart, people here in this room, we simply can't help ourselves. It is a natural outpouring of the new heart that's given us. I can recall, because I was old enough to when I became saved, I knew what my old heart was, stony. I wanted absolutely nothing to do with worshiping God. And I know the transformation that has been made that he put that new soft heart in me. I want now to worship him. It is appropriate. It just comes out. We are driven because of our new nature to seek God, to worship him. And in the giving of the prophecy of the new covenant in Jeremiah, uh, that is in Jeremiah 31, in Jeremiah 32, we have these words in verses 38 and 39. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may worship me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. It just comes out. It comes from the new heart. All right. That brings me to the bulk of this sermon, of this discussion this morning, uh, how and when we worship as New Testament believers. And I've already gone over uh, many examples in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, uh, the Mosaic Covenant. It had all kinds of regulations of worship and the service and bowing down, the ceremonies. The central focus in the Old Testament is the sacrifice. That's the central focus of, of the whole aspect of the life of the, of the Old Testament. And it didn't just start with the Levites. It goes all the way back to Abel, where we have Abel in Genesis chapter 4, Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 22. All of Israel are commanded in Exodus 7, when Moses and God is telling the Pharaoh through Moses, let my people go that they may go out and serve me, worship me out in the desert. And in Exodus chapter 12, again, before there is a tabernacle, before there's any temple, they had a Passover and the sacrifice of the animal was there as an act of worship to the Lord God. When the Israeli nation was formed and brought into the land, it was so important that 
one-twelfth of the entire nation was dedicated just to the worship service, to the temple and tabernacle ceremonies. That is where Israel tended to end in their thoughts. Do the ceremony, then we're, do, we're good. But pure ceremony was never the intent of the Lord, Levitical code or what God had commanded. It's forefront, but it was expected that of each person in Israel, that the outward action of the substitutionary and atoning sacrifice of the animal was to be accomplished with inner thankfulness, devotion, and dedication to God. Israel missed it uh, most often. Man in his fallen nature, give him rules and regulations, so he'll try to go follow those, misses the underlying reason why it was supposed to be there. This was a real problem with the people of Israel, and in Isaiah 43, Isaiah brings out this aspect as God is speaking to the people. You have not brought to me the sheep of your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. They brought the burnt offerings, all right, and I can see how easily it could be. Oh, it's required of me, so I'll bring a burnt offering. Okay, that's done. I can get back to my life. They did not consider the Lord God in what they were bringing their sacrifices. They didn't honor the Lord. At times they wanted to cheat the Lord in a particular type of sacrifice. So it was essentially a sham that they were going through, going through the motions without any underlying devotion to God himself for the whole reason why there was a sacrifice to show the need for sin to be atoned for. This is a quote from uh, Edward Young. The entirety of the sacrificial system was not intended to be a burden of no profit, but rather a joyful offering of sacrifices in which the offerer would approach the Lord with a willing heart. Such, however, was not the service that Israel rendered. Israel is not unique in this respect. This is the nature of fallen man. Within the Christian church, you look back at the history of the church, you can see where man fell into the trap of just simply performing the ceremonies. We do this a certain way. We have this ceremony. And then going forward, all that's all that ever gets emphasized. They forget about what underlies the reason for the ceremony. And this is prevalent in the Roman church at this point for many hundreds and thousand years, in fact. Many, many formal ritualistic uh, activities, genuflecting, all the ceremonies, pomp and circumstance that comes with it, yet totally has missed the, the message of the gospel of Christ in that. Uh, for an example of this, and you know, some points I, I hate to bring this up, but it is a good example of what has happened. I remember seeing one uh, Easter morning, watching on TV, Pope John Paul II go into St. Peter Cathedral for a worship ceremony of Jesus. So what does he do? He walks into that cathedral, goes over before a pretty giant statue of Jesus, bows down to the statue, and then lifts his head, head up, looks at the statue, and is praying to the statue. 
all the ceremony, everything that was going on had actually devolved into idolatry. That is not to be done, folks. And we in the United States churches within Protestantism have to guard ourselves against this. Uh, a good example is what happened to my church, Karen and I's church, at, back in California. This was at the beginning of what was called the emergent church movement. We didn't even know what it was called at that time. We hadn't, hadn't um, ever heard of this. And one of the men in the church who was a very good singer, he approached us and the pastors and said, hey, I have an idea. He would be back in the room so you really couldn't see him. He wouldn't be out up in front of people. And he would sing and we would have a projection on the screen uh, for people to to look at. And we, the first thought was, okay, I guess that's okay. We thought, oh, it's all the words on the screen. It might have a sunset or something as a background of this. No, that's not what it was, unfortunately. What, he, what we were going to have, and we didn't realize it, he was going to project images of Jesus, images of Mary, images of other things. And the idea was that you would worship through these images that were being projected onto the screen. That, you know, was approached. We didn't even realize what was happening. Fortunately, we had a pastor, associate pastor, who had just been over to the Philippines and had seen this type of thing. And he warned us, you can't do this. This is basically idolatry. We have to be careful, even in our churches in the United States. You, don't, you wouldn't think, oh, there's idolatry here. There is. It subtly comes in and guard against it. In Jesus' day, this was a prevalent problem within Israel. Simply go through the ceremonies, go through the sacrifices, just then go off and live your, the rest of your life. And that brings us to one of the crux passages. If you open your Bibles to John chapter 4, we're going to be looking at Jesus as he talks to the Samaritan woman. He's at the... This is... Jesus talking to this woman at the well of Jacob, and they have a discussion of the living water which Jesus offers, a discussion of her sin and the sins of her past and the current sin that she's engaged in. And then she changes the subject of where's the proper place to worship? She said, you Jews, you say the proper place in Jerusalem. We Samaritans, we have a temple here in Mount Gerizim. And so the context here is that well, she, she recognizes this one as a prophet. Maybe he'll accept our worship now and we can don't have to worry about going back to Jerusalem. We can just stay here and be all happy about our current worship at Mount Gerizim. The Samaritans and Jews, of course, they had no interaction. The Jews hated them and kicked them out and didn't allow them to be any part of any activity in the Jewish rituals and the rites at the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus, however, without compromising the proper standard that, hey, Jerusalem is the right place. There was never a command to, to build a temple at Mount Gerizim, even though that was the place where the blessings were proclaimed. That was not the right place. Mount Moriah was the right place in Jerusalem. But he also takes the whole discussion 
where's the right place? Is it Mount Gerizim? Is it Mount Moriah in Jerusalem? And he completely takes it to a whole new level. The squabble between Jerusalem and Mount Gerizim was to be replaced with better worship. As Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant, we're going to have better worship than what place you have. Mount Gerizim would be abandoned. Mount Moriah and Jerusalem would get leveled, raised to the ground. And now was the time Jesus is introducing to this woman. It's all going to fall upon your dedication to me, not where you worship, not what shrine you're at. Jesus is the dividing line at this point. So let's read this in John chapter 4, verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither this on, in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The passion and exaltation of Jesus were this turning point. When worship changed from ritual and outward ceremony, which still should have had the inward heart attitude to it, to inward praise and adoration. This is going to occur whether you're in Jerusalem, Mount Gerizim, uh, in Syria and Damascus, where it's in the Greek world, Europe, United States, China. It doesn't matter. It occurs when people adore and worship the Lord Jesus and proclaim him among the people. Interesting enough in this passage, you kind of see a hint of Jesus saying, you know, there's going to be a time when Samaritan and Jew are coming together. Paul discusses this in a different way when he says, hey, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, and on and on in his epistles. There's a little hint that these two will be brought together in the one and proper worship of Jesus the distinction is no longer what ethnic group, what shrine you particularly worship on. Rather, do you exalt Jesus or not? The true worship of the Father involves worship of Jesus, a recognition that he is the Messiah, the prophet to come for the Samaritans. Adoration of him is now the dividing line. Later in Jerusalem, Jesus tells the Jews a very similar statement John fourteen six. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. From that point on, and of course there was a transition period in there, you cannot have any proper worship of God without it being worship of Jesus as well. You cannot say, well, I'm going to worship the Father God, but this Jesus I'm, I'm going to put aside. That That is not proper worship anymore you are excluding your proper worship from god and in 
fulfillment of the prophecy. Jerusalem gets raised to the ground in AD 70. The temple on Mount Gerizim for the Samaritans was also destroyed in AD 110. They were wiped out, no more sacrifices, no more ceremonial worship in those places. And the only proper place to turn to would be Jesus. So he says two things here, uh, worship in spirit and truth. So worship in the spirit means to worship God in what he is like, for God is spirit. The reason given, God is spirit, you must worship him in spirit and truth. There's a distinction between the previous fleshly animal sacrifice and the true nature of God. It also means to worship God in the Holy Spirit. This involves the whole trinity in our worship, not just the Father alone, not just Jesus alone, but the Spirit is included all. All of it, all the trinity is included in our worship of God. The Spirit is the one who alighted on Jesus and dwells us believers and empowered Jesus to perform his ministries and miracles and the one that transformed our heart. So we rightly say that true worship of the Father is done in the power of the Spirit through the truth and access granted by Jesus' perfect sacrificial life, his death on the cross, his atoning and propitiating work, and his life-giving resurrection. All of this is involved when we come to say we are worshiping God in and worshiping Jesus. Anything short of this is improper worship. We who are redeemed, however, can and do fully with joy worship in such spirit, recognizing God as spirit, and we worship the, the Lord God, our Father, Jesus, our Savior, and the Spirit who empowers us. Worship in truth involves the declaration of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension to the what it means the true believer. He is our life. He is our resurrection. He is the one interceding for us before the Father. The truth of Scripture, when we talk about truth and worshiping in truth, is his word. And it involves self-sacrifice, admitting that we are but fallen creatures without him, but raised to glory because of him. It also means that we are not now our own, but rather our servants of him, of Jesus, for he purchased off the slave block and bought us and brought us into his family. And we see that in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, one of my favorite verses. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. It's hard to even read that. Ah, without tearing up, it's it's amazing. The entirety of Scripture given to us is revealed truth. When they are proclaimed, taught to the people, declared in witness, they constitute an act of worship through the service. This is part of the latria. Service to God is our declaration of God and our witness to God. In the upper room, after Judas had left, Jesus' first teaching to remaining eleven was, love one another, love the brethren, serving their needs, supporting them. Gathering with one another, which is what we do on a regular occasion, is in itself an act of worship to God, for he is among us. 
And it's one of the great things that we do as our meals together, our once-a-month meals, a great way to enjoy each other's fellowship within the fellowship which we have with the Lord. Now, I didn't want to make too much of a distinction here when I said I had talked about what it means to worship in spirit and what it means to worship in truth as if you could do one without the other. You cannot do that. If you worship truly, it will be in spirit and truth. It is a package deal coming together. You have one, you also have the other. So what do we do with our worship? What other aspect do we have of this? So turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. In our service to one another, building up of the body of Christ, witnessing of his majesty, we have a purpose statement given why God redeemed the people for himself. Most of the time when I discuss this, I discuss the aspect of who we are now in Jesus. But today we're going to discuss the second point in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our job is to proclaim Jesus, his excellencies, magnify his name, to exalt him among ourselves and among those who we live and work and interact. This is proper worship of God. It is our sacrifice of praise to be giving him the glory and pointing people to the Lord Jesus. So how does one proclaim his excellencies? And there are multifaceted ways we might discuss on this. I've picked out a couple here. First, we recognize how awesome our God is. Psalm 66. Shout joyfully to God all the years. Sing the glory of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your works. Because of the greatness of your power, your enemies will pretend to obey you. All the earth will worship you and will sing praises to you. They will sing praises to your name. Come and see the works of God, who is awesome, his deeds towards the sons of mankind. There is a proper recognition of how awesome he is. Give him praise and glory. Just continue it uh, throughout your days. A second aspect, witness to the great salvation that Jesus gives. That says in Hebrews 2, 3, we have so great a salvation. And it's somewhat of a different angle. And this is one of the hard things for us, certainly for me. Uh, oh, uh, getting ahead of myself. In this witness of the great salvation that we have, back to my second point, uh, we have an example of this in the book of Acts. And I picked this out specifically because it ties back to what Jesus was telling this Samaritan woman. Philip was proclaiming after there was a scattering of the uh, of the people of God in, in Jerusalem. They, they were persecuted, and so they started scattering. And people, and Philip has found himself among the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. And then they start receiving the word of God. They start receiving the message about Jesus. And so when the church in Jerusalem hears about this, they send Peter and John and uh, accompany him and start proclaiming again 
the full doctrine of Jesus and his messiahship, his death, burial, and resurrection. And in Acts chapter 8, after they're finished with that one particular city, they're starting to head back to Jerusalem. And in Acts 8, verse 25, So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Jesus in John chapter 4 said, you Samaritans are going to, at one point, worship in spirit and truth. Here it starts with the expansion of the gospel first into Samaria. And then the third point of how we proclaim his excellencies is to live a life according to our calling. This hits certainly me because I recognize the sin of my own life, my own falling short of that calling. This is a most difficult thing to do, but if we try to do it in our own power, we'll fail. We try to do it in the power of the Spirit of God, we can succeed. And I have some comments about this. Why is living a life, according to our calling, part of proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus? And I have one from John Calvin and another one from a commentator named uh, Barnes. Here's what John Calvin says. He carefully points out the end of our calling that he might stimulate us to give glory to God. And the sum of what he says is that God has favored us with these immense benefits and constantly manifests them that his glory might be made known for by praises or virtues, he understands wisdom, goodness, power, righteousness, and everything else in which the glory of God shines forth. And further, it behooves us to declare these virtues or excellencies not only by our tongue, but also by our whole life. This doctrine ought to be the subject of our daily meditation, and it ought to be continually remembered by us that all God's blessings which we, with which he favors us are intended for this end that his glory may be proclaimed by us in word, in tongue, and in the life that we live. Uh, Barnes says, this one great object of which we were redeemed to proclaim his excellencies, it was that we might proclaim the glory of God and keep up the remembrance of his wondrous deeds in the earth. This is to be done by proper ascription of praise, by being always avowed friends of God, by endeavoring to make known his excellencies to those who are ignorant of him. And the last point, by such a life as shall constantly proclaim his praise, as the sun, moon, and stars, and hills, and streams, and flowers do, showing what God does, the consistent life of a devoted Christian is a constant setting forth of the praise of God, showing to all that the God who has made him such is worthy to be loved. That is an amazing statement. I recognize it is hard to do, but it is appropriate to live a, a life according to our calling, which shows forth the excellencies. There was a man in Huntington Beach when I used to work back there who had noticed something different about me. And one of his friends became saved. So he came up and asked me, and he asked, what's it mean to be born again? He knew there was a difference between the way he lived and the way I lived. And it's just marvelous to see that, you know, the result of my dependence upon God actually 
work to him asking about what this, the gospel is. So, unfortunately, he didn't come to Christ right then and there, but I, you know, I had a chance to witness. One final note before our closing. Our worship service here at Castle Rock Baptist involves all these aspects of worshiping in spirit and truth. We sing hymns which move the spirit within us, recognizing God is spirit. It's not just physical, temporal things, but these hymns also have such great and rich theology. We read the scripture, we pray to the Lord God, and Brian proclaims the excellencies of our Lord in the preaching of his word on a, on a regular basis. So this aspect of the when we gather in formal worship in our time on Sunday mornings is properly a worship service, and all these aspects proclaim that it is. So I wanted to close today after we discuss all the aspects of what worship is, how we're to worship, why we worship, who we worship. Let's close with reading the phrases out of the book of Jude. Turn over from First Peter a couple of pages, and I'm going to start in verse 20. And let's make this, as I close, our closing prayer of adoration and worship to the Lord God. Verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in our most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, and have mercy on some who are doubting, save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. May we worship him. May we adore him.